and welcome to episode 440 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. I want to welcome you to Monster Kid Radio, and we're going old school this time around. This week's episode, we're going to talk about a movie that is one of the most important movies in my own Monster Kid Dumb. We're talking about The Wolfman with my man, Stephen D. Sullivan. Author Stephen D. Sullivan has been a longtime friend of the show, and he's coming here to talk about Long Cheney Jr., Larry Talbot, The Wolfman, and what it's like to get fur. Well, okay, that kind of sounds off. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about the music that you're hearing right now. This is the band Black Valley Moon. From their album, The Baleful Sounds of Black Valley Moon, Volume 1, the song is called Glade Runner Blues. You can pick it up from them at Bandcamp by going to blackvalleymoon.bandcamp.com. You can get the entire digital album, 12 tracks, for 5 bucks. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Go check them out when you're done listening to this episode of the podcast. Of course, you'll hear the song in its entirety without me talking all over it at the end of the show. So stay tuned for that. In this episode, not only do we have the conversation with Stephen D. Sullivan about The Wolfman, we have Kenny's look at famous monsters of Filmland, we have a bedtime story from Professor Frenzy, and we have Dr. Tongue taking us back to the world of monster collectibles, and a couple of announcements that I want to share with you guys and gals. First of all, this past weekend was the HP Lovecraft Film Festival here in Portland, Oregon, and I had a blast. I think it's probably the most fun that I've had at the Lovecraft Film Festival in Years, And I'm sure part of that is because of the movies they were playing. You know, not one, not two, but there are actually three classic genre films running at the festival this time around, which was a real treat because last year I don't think they really had anything. I don't remember for sure, but this year they showed The Tingler, X, The Man with the X-Ray Eyes, and The Haunted Palace. Now, of course, I'd already seen all these movies, but just to see them on the big screen is something special. I was able to introduce X, The Man with the X-Ray Eyes, and then The Tingler, and The Haunted Palace were both shown in 35mm. Oh, boy. That was amazing. Victoria Price was there introducing or doing the Q&A after the films with Roger Corman, who was there as well. And speaking of those two, and let's bring Chris McMillan and Dominique Lamsey's into the mix, the five of us did a live episode of Monster Kid Radio, which I tried to record. Now, fingers and tentacles crossed. So there were some audio issues on the end of the mixer that was being used by the folks at the film festival and you know whatever it is what it is there's a chance the audio is not going to be as clear as i'd like it to be which is why i'm not planning to cover anything from the lovecraft film festival later this month after i've had a chance to go through it all and see what i can do with it again fingers and tentacles crossed if you were at the Lovecraft Film Festival and I met you for the first time or you're just now discovering Monster Kid Radio because of what was going on at the Lovecraft Film Festival, welcome aboard. I know we got a lot of people joining the Facebook group after the festival, and I'm assuming that that's where that came from. So welcome to the group. Welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you here, and I hope you enjoy your stay. If you were at the film festival and you took pictures, and especially if you took video, please reach out to me because I would love to see the pictures to begin with. And if you recorded the live podcast on video, even if it was just a little bit of it, that might help us reconstruct that live episode of MKR that we can play later on this month. So let me know if you have any of that. I'm 
you know, would love to see what we can do about making this thing work and, you know, sound as good as it possibly can be. You might notice that this episode, okay, you probably noticed that this episode actually isn't going out until Thursday afternoon. And typically, a new episode of Monster Kid Radio drops late Wednesday night, early Thursday morning. And, you know, I appreciate your patience and letting me get it out later today. Thursday has always been the target day for Monster Kid Radio, so... I still feel like I haven't missed a beat, but it is a little bit later, so I apologize for that. I hope I didn't ruin anybody's morning commute or anything like that because there wasn't a new episode yet. Anyway, this may happen more and more in the future, thinking about moving to a Thursday afternoon release schedule for a couple of different reasons. Uh, Part of it has to do with Facebook algorithms and Twitter algorithms because the Monster Kid Radio podcast, when it's announced, it goes out to Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn as well. I want to make sure that everybody's getting it because I know sometimes on Facebook not everybody gets every post and I'm kind of playing with the release time with that. Also, lately I've been staying up to like 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning on Wednesday night to get the show done. It's kind of tough. I mean, I'm a monster kid. I'm used to staying up late watching monster movies, but it's getting difficult sometimes. So we'll we'll see. I'll, I'll keep you posted. A couple of announcements I want to go over real quick. First of all, Steve Turek, you've heard him on the show. He's the mastermind, the mad mastermind behind the monster movie tournament bracket breakdown sports thing that we do here. He's also the guy who's been in charge of the top 100 monster movies. He really helps out the show quite a bit. He's an essential part of Monster Kid Radio. I just hope he still has time for us now that he's launched his own podcast with his son and daughter. It's called the Diecast Movie Review Podcast, and you can find it on Anchor and Spotify. I'll make sure there's links in the show notes. And here in a moment, I'll play the introduction from the very first episode just so you can kind of get a taste of what it is. And I highly recommend you check it out. I mean, Steve is amazing. Ben and Kayla are awesome. And their guests for their first episode friend of the show joshua kennedy so go check that out also big congratulations to christopher page and his co-host lydia over at the orphaned entertainment podcast they just recently recorded an episode that marks their seventh year of that podcast i don't think that episode's actually come out yet but when it does i'm sure it's going to be awesome because all the other episodes are awesome too i'll play a promo for their show here later on in the show as well so congratulations to christopher and lydia I want to give a shout out to new listener Daniel D who sent me a message on Facebook letting me know about an issue of Alter Ego Magazine issue number 43. The print edition was sold out but there is an e-edition available and the reason he sent me information about it is because it's all about Luchador Comics. That's awesome. So thank you for sending that my way Daniel and thank you for listening to the show and checking it out. And speaking of getting things in the mail, this morning I got a knock on my door from the mailman. I got a package from friend of the show, Karen Joan Kohotic. I'll tell you a little bit more about that probably within the next week or so because it was pretty darn cool. Karen, your package came in. It's amazing. Amazing. Anyway, there are some events coming up with Halloween coming closer and closer. Can't get here soon enough, but then I don't want it to come too quickly because I really want to enjoy October, but and we'll get to all of those things later in this episode. Towards the end, I'll make some announcements about events happening, not just here, but uh, around the Monster Kid Radio nation since, well, somebody did send me an email about an event they're going to, and uh, man, I wish I could be there. Anyway, I'll talk about all that later in this episode towards the end, but before we move on, 
Big thanks to Bill Mize, the man behind the excellent Bill Watches Movies podcast. He just posted a YouTube video not too long ago in which he played not just five, but ten cards from the classic five deck. I thought it was a really cool thing to do, man. I really appreciate it, Bill. That was a lot of fun to watch. And now I'm starting to think maybe we should do something regarding the classic five on YouTube on the regular. Let's see what I can come up with. And any new listeners, if you don't know what the Classic 5 is, we'll stay tuned because I'm going to be playing that with Steve here in a little bit, which we'll get to right after this. Hi, I'm Ben from the Diecast Movie Review Podcast, which is done by myself, my sister, and my father, where the genre of the movie is decided by the cast of a die. The categories are horror, drama, comedy, action, sci-fi and fantasy, animation, and musical. Also on occasion, we'll have a special episode dedicated to conversations with creators, directors, actors involved in the production of movies. Join us and see what movie we pick next. Hello, Christopher. What insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but there are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. Oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something and review and discuss it. Huh, that sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Why don't you click over to Orphan Entertainment and remind yourself a little more about the show. Oh, will do. Let's see, that's at orphanentertainment.com. And yeah, it looks like we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie someday? Mm-hmm, we'll see, Christopher. We'll see. from unexplored secret stratus. This giant, harder-than-steel piston, disgorges strange creatures, inundating our world, twisting the emotions of women, distorting our men. This is a piece we got off the mare. Reflex action like a snake. Cut a snake in half and the two pieces go off in different directions. These things take over a man's mind? He becomes a... A robot? A machine taking orders? Join the hunt for the hiding place of terror. Find the breeding place of these globs of destruction. In feeding the mouth parts, rupture the cells, convey the food to the stomach by a a pumping action. Ah! It's an adventure. 
adventure that'll burst your blood vessels with suspense. See the Brain Eaters. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Welcome to Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories, created especially for Monster Kid Radio. My name is Jerry Green. In this segment, I'm going to tell you a story from EC Horror Comics. Today's story is Television Terror. It is from The Haunt of Fear, number 17, the September-October issue from 1950. It was written by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, and the art was by Harvey Kurtzman. So sit back and relax while I tell this haunted tale. Hey everyone, it's 8pm, and that means it's time for the Al Hunt Show. Families all across the nation tune their newfangled television sets in to see Al and his zany antics. Tonight, Al is going to spend the night in a haunted house. He has a remote camera and will be heading into the old Creedmoor Mansion. His guide for the evening is noted paranormal investigator Professor John Poltergeist of the London Society of Psychic Research. Poltergeist tells Al all about the history of the house. In 1897, old Mr. Creedmoor came to the house with his new young bride. Apparently, their age difference made their lives difficult. One night, Creedmoor was found dead, hung by the neck in the upstairs room. The law said that he hung himself, but you know how rumors get started. It was said that he was killed by his wife and her lover. Soon, Mrs. Creedmoor remarried and moved into the house with her new husband. Less than a month later, they were both found dead, hanging in the same upstairs room. No one has lived in the creepy mansion since. On with the show! Al Hunt and Poltergeist head into the house with a portable camera in tow. Poltergeist goes upstairs, and Hunt stays downstairs to look around. Hey, there's a portrait of the stern old Mr. Creedmoor and his mean-looking wife. Hey, what's that? Suddenly, Hunt feels something cold on his cheek. He gets frightened and runs upstairs. His head is spinning and he's full of confusion. Al puts the camera down and the audience can see him through a doorway. He climbs up onto a chair, his head disappearing behind the doorframe. He kicks the chair away. Then viewers can only see his legs dangling limply above the floor. The end. I hope you enjoyed that hi-fi tale. In 1950, there were fewer than 10 million TV sets in America. TV was the new and exciting technology. This story was published a year before I Love Lucy debuted. EC was getting on board the new hot trend with this story. And much like stories set at the beginning of the internet era, the tale had to explain a lot of things to people that didn't really understand the new stuff, like remote cameras, camera cables, moving cameras, putting down cameras, etc., etc. All of that kind of got in the way of the plot. Even so, it's a fascinating look into the mid-20th century America, and a decent, if straightforward, haunted house story. Kurtzman's art is a little muddy, and I'm not sure if the intent was to make it gloomy and moody, or if the coloring on the reprint was a little off. Perhaps it was to replicate the look of a 1950s black-and-white television set. The corners of the panels were rounded to give the effect of a TV. It could also be intentional because many panels had faces and dark shadows that looked creepy, and it was effective. All in all, this was a very cool peek into a very different time. 
If you're interested in a copy of The Haunt of Fear Volume 1, the book can be purchased on Amazon, and you can find a link to buy it on the MKR website. I hope you enjoyed the story. My name is Jerry Green, and you can find me on my podcast, The Professor Frenzy Show, where we talk about new indie comics, and Bat Books for Beginners, where we talk about historical Batman and Bat Family comics. You can also catch me on Twitter, at Professor Frenzy, and search for Professor Frenzy on YouTube, where you can find The Professor Frenzy Show and some exciting projects we have coming up. Stay tuned, and thanks for listening. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy. Since the time of Babylon, I've walked the earth challenging the most venturesome of men. I am this sinuous creature, a killer cat. And I'm a woman, seductive, tantalizing, inviting a lover's caress. But to caress me is to play with death. I am the mystery woman of the ages, feline, fascinating. To know me, is to know all my loves, all the lives I've lived, the deaths I've caused. I am the essence in woman that no man can resist. I am Cat Girl. The Brides of Dracula. Never, never before has a motion picture revealed so much of the mystical, the unnatural. The Brides of Dracula. Out of the unknown darkness he comes. The handsomest, the most evil Dracula of them all. Bringing horror beyond human endurance to a fashionable girl's school. Who can resist him as one by one he seeks out his fresh, innocent victims? Who will be next to know his kiss of death as one by one he lures young beauties into the timeless, bloodless realm of the undead? Beware of pity, for he feels none. Beware of love, for none can refuse him. Never has the struggle between good and evil been so shocking and the outcome so uncertain. Terror beyond telling in color. The Brides of Dracula. presents Dr. Tong's World of Monster Collectibles. Spanning the globe looking for monster goo so you don't have to. Dateline, the internet. Ah, fall is finally officially here. With the crisp snap in the air, colder days and nights, it has arrived. Soup weather! And with it, monster season is upon us. Lots of cool, spooky events going on, and tons of goo in the shops, as well as promising announcements for upcoming releases. As I walked into my local Walgreens store, among the tons of reimagined Nightmare Before Christmas items and that eyeball doorbell that seems to be everywhere this year, I got a very pleasant surprise. Officially licensed Universal Monster Bendy figures made by the folks at Sunny Days Entertainment. They are in the traditional bubble and backing card package, Sporting a very nostalgic Bendham's logo. Now, mind you, not vintage nostalgia, but nostalgic in the reference to the Universal Monsters resurgence that was done in the early 90s. You all remember that, right? Universal released onto the public scores of merchandise bearing the likenesses of classic monsters, so to speak. 
essentially sanitizing them so they didn't resemble the people that actually played them. Come on, you all remember that? Gone was the Bella Dracula, replaced by a youthful, pasty, white-faced, cleaned-up version of George Hamilton. And the werewolf was devoid of the charm that Lon brought to the part. And poor Frankie, debased into a green, milk-toasty, flat-topped goon. Ah, licensing roared its ugly head back then. Those were the days. But I digress. The current Bendy set also does away with trying to resemble the people that played them, but I can say that they did at least look a little better than the 90s releases. The set of four consists of Dracula, Frankenstein, the werewolf, and surprisingly, the creature. But they all have that, um, let's see the best way to describe this. I, uh, I'm all out of spare change look to them. Also seen around at the usual shopping haunts this year are what can best be described as mechanical plush toys. They're short, squat plush figures with mechanical guts that allows it to walk around and make sounds or talk. Some of the more creative ones I've seen include a classic brain-eating zombie, and on the licensed side, Beetlejuice, Regan from Exorcist, and my favorite, a Jack Torrance sporting the axe from Kubrick's The Shining. There's more cool stuff to look forward to in the next few months, as was announced just recently to include more of the Toonie Terrors from NECA that I reported on last time. The second series of the figures has been announced and previewed at the New York City Comic Con just recently, and the set includes Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original Shape from Halloween, and a surprising inclusion, Pinhead from Hellraiser. Rot row Scooby! And another fun release from NECA that is on pre-order for release in the first part of 2020, the set of three six-inch kitty trick-or-treaters from Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, sporting the classic Don Post masks. Now I know I reported this a while back, but now they have been approved and are set to be released. I cannot wait. Of this just in! We've got some breaking news. Head on over to Mondo.com, where pre-orders are up for four really cool monster tiki mugs designed by Retro Agogo's own Doug Pagash. I really don't think that's his real name. The Creature, Wolfman, Mummy, and Mask of the Red Death Phantom all get the tiki treatment, and I mean that in a good way. Check it out. Like I said, they are pre-release. Artist Spotlight! If you like your movie monster art pure and unadulterated, then this next artist will be right up your alley. Audrey Funk goes by the name Mad Monster Lady when she needs to separate herself from the normalcy that goes along with being a legit art teacher. Art teacher by day, monster lover all other hours of the day and night. Her artwork captures the essence that is the Universal Monsters. The classics are represented as well as some other fun monstery subjects, Eddie Munster and Elvira come to mind, she has even had art featured in the new iteration of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. Some of her more fun pieces that she has rendered are a creature from the Black Lagoon painted on an old seafood restaurant menu, and a really cool 54 Godzilla done in a cross-stitch pattern surrounded by mini kaiju. Check out her artwork at Mad Monster Lady, all one word over on IG. She also has a website using the same name. I just don't forget to add that .com on the end. She has original and prints available for purchase there. Vintage Monster Toys! Sticking with the game theme again this time around, because A, it seems like a great fall activity to do with the family on a cold fall night, and B, there are just too many cool monster games that have been released over the years. So, 
why ignore them? In 1963, Ideal, the king of the monster board games over the years, released unto the world a series of eight Universal Monster Mystery Games, all dealing with... Anybody? Anybody? You guessed it. Eight different Universal Monsters. If you want to get picky, six Universal Monsters, one Toho, and one RKO. The games themselves were very basic spin, card, token, figures around a track style board games, but sporting great images, each featuring a different monster in the classic likenesses that we have all known to love over the years. The series included Frankenstein's Monster, Dracula, Werewolf, Mummy, Phantom of the Opera, Creature, and then two giants of the industry, King Kong and Godzilla. The artwork on the front of all the games was done in a collage style, with various graphics from the game board and pieces, and featuring a large picture of whichever monster's game it was. Now the images of the monsters varied from game to game. The Dracula and Werewolf, looking very much like Bella and Lon respectfully. King Kong's image was taken from a famous promotional pose with him trashing New York City, about to put the whoop-ass onto whomever stole Andero. The Godzilla also looks to be taken from a promotional picture and has the big guy trashing what looks like, also, New York City. The Frankenstein didn't really look like Boris, but more of a generic image of the monster we've seen before on other Universal items. Now, with the mummy, the creature, and the phantom bearing strange resemblances to their poses from the Aurora monster model boxes, but not as clean. The games themselves are all family friendly. Well, if your kids like monsters, and if they don't, maybe they're not your kids. They're relatively easy to play, and they don't involve a lot of setup time. But here's the big but. On the other hand, at the prices that these are commanding on the collector's market these days, I'm thinking you want to keep your children as far away from them as possible. Now, I am talking safety deposit box as far away as possible. In order to obtain any of these games, prepare to open up your wallet. And honestly, that is if you can find them all. From my understanding, the mummy seems to be one of the more difficult ones to obtain, as well as the phantom. And to give you an idea as to how rare these games are, I have yet to see any of the eight in my over 30 plus years I have been doing vintage collectibles. eBay has made it easier to find them, but it hasn't made them any cheaper. Happy hunting out there, monster kitties. It's that time of the year, guys. Got any sneak peeks of monster merchandise coming out soon? Or feedback on the DTWOMC segments? Drop Derek a line and he'll forward it along to me here at MKR. And if you're interested, you can see what's going on over at my toy shop on Instagram at Dr. Tongues Toys, as well as on Facebook under Dr. Tongues I Had That Shop. Or you can head on over to my private Instagram account, MonsterMan64, to see some of the cool stuff I pick up from my own monster collection. This is Mark, Dr. Tom Peterson, saying, Happy monster collecting, everybody. I'm out. Peace. Every once in a while, there is a special kind of horror film that becomes a horror classic. In 1931, it was Frankenstein. In 1932, it was Dracula. In 1971, it was Rosemary's Baby. In 1973, it was The Exorcist. And this year it is From Beyond the Grave. 
secret worlds become public nightmares, where children's play toys are the devil's weapons. A truly terrifying motion picture, where death is just the beginning, and the grave is not just a resting place. And pleasant rooms become evil tombs. From beyond the grave, the horror picture you will remember all your life. The Flashbulb Podcast: three to ten minutes of fiction brought to you thrice weekly. From cosmic horrors to fisticuffs, fast cars, and smart mouths, we've got a chill for every spine. Find it all at flashbulb.com or search for it on iTunes. <laughs> Fission science creates an electronic monster so terrifying, only screams can describe it. Come back home. Come back home. According to the evidence, Hennessy was murdered by a creature with atom rays of superhuman strength and a creature that cannot be killed by bullets. I said I would live to see you die. I just came from the bureau and checked the murderer's fingerprints. His name is Willard Pierce. They let me have it from the files. Petty theft, fraud, three months in prison, tuberculosis. How could a tubercular man have strength enough to break those bars like that? You think that's something? Answer this one. How could a dead man have strength enough to do it? Fantastic, but based on scientific fact. Planes. How low they're flying. You will stop all planes and trucks searching for radioactivity. If you do not, many people will be killed. There will be no other warning. Hello, hello, hello. They hung up before I could put a tracer on it. Slow down, Dave. Dave, did they? No. Go out and kill him. Kid Radioheads, this is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This week's film, the universal classic The Wolfman, was featured in Famous Monsters number 51 from August of 1968 and was reprinted in issue 96 from March of 1973. It is a 13-page article with a whopping 22 photos. It starts with this corny intro. Even as a child, Larry Talbot wolfed down his food. His first words were, woof woof. He was the first kid on the block to sprout a mustache. At three, did it all mean something? Only Lon Chaney Jr. knew. And he wasn't talking while the moon was full. Even a man who's pure in heart may want to raise a little howl now and then. 
The rest of the article is a straightforward synopsis with much of the dialogue transcribed. Of course, spoilers abound. Here is how the famous first transformation is described. Stunned, Larry now feels there may be some truth to Malela's words. He races away into the depths of the forest back to Castle Talbot. With a quick glance up at the moonless sky, he bursts inside and dashes to his room. His heart pounding, he flings himself into a chair and tears off his jacket. Feeling strange pains in his feet, he quickly removes his shoes and socks. More strange pains and unknown sensations sweep over his body, and he turns his gaze to the open window. The newly risen full moon shines in, bathing him with its brilliance. His eyes become glazed, and the mind of Larry Talbot vanishes. Coarse gray hair covers his feet and legs, and the bones of his feet alter their shape. His nails become claws. The Wolfman rises, pacing from the room on its padded paws. The rest of the film is covered with similar detail. We will see more about it in our main segment. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters. We will have more next time. Adios! This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. You're ready. Roll, roll the tapes, and we'll get this. We'll get this puppy as it were started. Oh God, really? I'm going to use that to start. So, uh, yeah, listeners, that's Steve Sullivan, and he's a writer, <laughs> <laughs> and he came up with that. This puppy for yeah. the Wolfman, really? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, listeners, welcome to this episode of Monster Kid Radio where I'm talking with Stephen D. Sullivan. Steve, the man, longtime supporter of the show, longer time friend, and a big old fan of the Wolfman. How you doing, man? I'm doing really great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Now that we've worked out all of our technical issues, and not to get into it too much, but listeners, sometimes Skype can be very disagreeable. Um, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear me now. I can hear you now. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully the recording is working and that that's what really matters. You know, right? I was just thinking maybe we should blame the Skype problems on a full moon or something, but I don't think it's a full moon right now. No, it's actually very close to the new moon. It's funny since doing Dr. Cushing's chamber of horrors. Look at you working which, that plug in. Wow. Which <laughs> has a wolf man in it. <laughs> I, have become much more attuned to the phases of the moon and what they are. And before I did that, I couldn't have even told you in which direction was the new moon and which direction was the last quarter. Moon. Mm, okay. But now it's like, I look up and I go, Oh yeah, that's a waxing gibbous moon or that's a waning gibbous moon. And, and it's all due to the fact that I wanted the story to have for similitude, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that I wanted it to seem real. So I had to teach myself enough about it that I could make it convincing in a story. Okay, well, 
there you go. That's the life of a writer in a, in a, in a nutshell. It's like learning really useless things for some small story point you're working on. It's not useless at all, man. I mean, you got to know nope, this stuff. Nope. I mean, well, what if a werewolf showed up? You you would need to know when best, to, you know, just saying. Right. Well, it, it was important. It, you know, I mean, the, tracking the dates, tracking the times, the moon rises and sets, and learning things, you know, that I kind of never knew. Like, you know? there's only certain phases of the moon where you see the moon in the day. You know, you'd think after about 60 years, I'd have figured that out. But nope, <laughs> never, never paid enough attention to. But now I know. There you there go. You go. So the Wolfman, 1941. Yeah, well, we'll get into that here in a second. I mean, it's been a little while since we've chatted. You brought up your book, Dr. Cushing's. Uh, what is going on with you on the writing front, sir? Well, I'm currently publishing the uh, the first Frost Harrow book on my Patreon and on my website. And there's, uh, depending upon how you count, four or five more of those. There's one that's like a double long one. So I'm, I'm still going with that. That's gotten pretty deep into it, and there's a new chapter coming out every two weeks, and that's called Scream Lover. So I'll be working through on that until that's done and making sure that content keeps uh, refreshing for people that are throwing a buck or two at me on the Patreon and uh, putting it up a little later for the people on the site. So that, that's fun. I'm hoping – it doesn't look like I'm going to manage to get Dr. Cushing out in print form for – Halloween this year, but I'm still hoping by the end of the year that I may be able to get that done. I did a graphic for Joshua Kennedy's upcoming film, which you're working on too, which is called Cowgirls vs. Pterodactyls, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that was fun. I'm doing that. Doing a couple of role-playing game things, writing a story for a game called Metamorphosis Alpha, I think, assuming uh, I like the contract terms, and just wrapping up Tournament of Death stuff that should have been done two years ago, but it's almost done now. So lots of stuff for me. I don't know anything about having a crowdfunding project that isn't done yet when it should have been done a long time ago. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Number nine. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. That was a Beatles reference, really. It wasn't anything else. <laughs> no, I feel terrible about that. You can it's ex- coming along well, though, but it's uh, what I've discovered with Kickstarter after, after having done three is... No matter how long you think a Kickstarter will take, it will take double that. Even if you take your original estimate and you double that, it will still take double that. And the only way I can see to avoid that is to actually have the entire thing finished before you put it out, which I may do with the the couple of books that I'm finishing up as part of the the crowdfunded Kickstarter. I may kickstart those in order to get pre-orders for the print books. But if I do, I'm going to actually have press proofs in my hand before I put it up. Mm, Because otherwise, it's just – things happen, man. Life happens. And and it all suddenly, you know, oh, it's going to be done in January. Well, maybe next January. (laughs) Maybe the January after. Just – Things slip. You want people to enjoy the thing, and you know, as Murphy's Law said, everything takes longer than you expect, and anything that can go wrong will, at the worst possible time. As so, we well know, considering our issues with Skype this morning, with Skype today, yeah. which you normally is, we get online ten minutes before we're going to record. You switch on your unit, I switch on my unit, and it works. And today it didn't, and we spent twenty minutes. And I don't know how we solved it, and you don't know how we solved I have it either. No idea how, I don't know. It just suddenly started working, doing the exact same things we'd been doing for the last twenty minutes. Derek was like, 
I think I heard you breathe because it was my mic that wasn't getting to him. I could hear him. I could see my mic was working, but he couldn't hear me. It was weird. Anyway, so maybe it's spooky, spooky action at a distance. Spooky. Ooh. Well, you know, it's appropriate since this episode is going out in October, and that is the best time of the year for monster kids like us. Oh. Wonderful time. I'm not paying for the rights for that song. Stop. <laughs> Nah, we're good. We got other things to get to. We've got old folklores. We've got, uh, how does he put it? Not lycanthropy. How does uh, Claude Rains pronounce it? Lycanthropy? Lycanthropy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've got that to talk about. We've got gypsies running around doing stuff and Bela playing Bela. And we've got and silver canes and, silver and, canes, and, yeah. and later silver bullets yeah, and well, all sorts yeah, of stuff. Yeah, no silver bullets in this one, but yeah, it does nope, eventually. Yeah. We're talking about the Wolfman. We are. We are. The original Wolfman. The the 1941 film, not quite the original werewolf film from Universal, but when you think werewolves, Universal, you can't help but think Lon Chaney Jr. in some amazing makeups playing the amazing character of Larry Talbot. And to get warmed up and and into the mood, we're going to play a round of the Classic 5 Universal Edition. Are you ready, Steve? Ooh, maybe. We'll see. As you all know, if you listen to this regularly, this is a a conversation starter, but it's never pre-rehearsed. So those of us being asked the questions have no idea what they may be. And it may be things that we've temporarily forgotten or never knew to begin with. But let's see how we're doing today. That's right. So the classic five conversation starter. I've got a deck of cards here. Each one of these cards has a this or that. Which movie do you prefer style question? There are no wrong answers. And this time around, we are sticking to the universal deck. And Steve, if you are ready to play, let me know by singing the theme song. (laughs) The classic five. Excellent. All right. Here we go. (laughs) Card number one. Uh, And, you know, I think we've brought this one up before in the past, but I'm going to bring it up again because it's kind of sort of relevant. Who would really win in a fight, Steve? The Wolfman or Dracula? Oh, it's funny you should ask that because I was actually watching Evan Costello meet Frankenstein just like an hour before we started talking. Mm -hmm. So just now, and at the climax of that, Dracula and the Wolfman are on either side of this gurney with Lou Costello on the gurney, and they're pushing the gurney at each other, and neither one of them can quite get the other... To move away. It's like a tug of war. It's really, they're really evenly matched. But if we remember that the the Wolfman ends up like grabbing Dracula and, and, uh, spoilers, 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 uh, (laughs) jumping over a cliff with a bat in his hand. So, you know, my, my tendency is that the, the werewolf could probably defeat the vampire generally, but Dracula is Dracula, too. So, you know, every time you think he's dead, he's kind of not dead. So as we know from the Universal films. So I'm, I'm thinking they're fairly evenly matched in terms of, of sheer physical strength. And it would be a, a matter of the, the Wolfman's animalistic tendencies versus Dracula's cunning and, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of history. So straight up. I think the Wolfman would win, but I I also think that Dracula could totally outfox him by like turning into a bat, letting the Wolfman jump onto him, and then as they're falling through the air, Dracula turns into mist, and then the Wolfman falls onto the rocks and is really messed up. You know, really, they need to consult with you, Steve, to find out how close this fight is to the full moon, because that would really kind of 
Yep. Well, that that might have something to do with it too, depending upon the the mythology we're we're working on. Certainly, uh, certainly, Lawrence Talbot would not stand a lot of a chance against Dracula. Although it's interesting that Dracula and the Wolfman kind of became foes at the end of the the Wolfman series of movies. Well, that was something so. that was always kind of I feel like it was ingrained in the Universal Monster Mythos because at one point they were going to film a Technicolor production of Wolfman versus Dracula. A script was written. I wish they had done that. Now I'd, I've read a version of that script and the, like the first part of it was awesome. And then it kind of completely went to hell. Yeah. It does kind of <laughs> fall apart there at the end. I was thinking as, as I was watching the Wolfman and the associated movies this last week, I was thinking, Oh, I would give almost anything to write that myself. So universal dark universe. If you're listening, I will totally write the Wolfman versus Dracula for you. And if you need some creds, well, there might be a vampire werewolf battle somewhere in Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors. I'm just saying. And I, Are you listening, <laughs> Dark Universe? Put me in charge. I won't even be that expensive. Not by Hollywood standards, anyway. <laughs> Call Steve. He's cheap. Okay, question number two. <laughs> <laughs> Only on things I love. Question number two. This could really go anyway. Uh, okay. Uh, Steve, what's your favorite Universal Monster movie sequel? Oh, I was just thinking about this. It's actually Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. But he doesn't understand. There's a curse upon me. I change into a wolf. <laughs> I saw my father become obsessed by his power. He died a horrible death. There's no need for us all to storm after her. She'll come in if I ask. Why should we treat her so fancy? She's a Frankenstein. I know that a lot of people would probably say The Bride of Frankenstein. And I love The Bride of Frankenstein, and I I saw chunks of it recently because uh, Turner was playing it within the last week or so. And I love Revenge of the Creature, too. So those are my other two contenders. But as I was watching Frankenstein meets the Wolfman the other night, I thought, this is just a perfect movie. (laughs) It's lean. It's mean. It's got creepy stuff in the beginning. It's got the monster battle at the end. It's got Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney Jr., even though Bela is not really recognizable against the uh, under the monster's makeup i'd love to hear and see the actual version where bela gets to talk as igor's brain in the monster's body and spoilers for those of you that don't know that that, that happened so but uh, yeah frankenstein meets the wolfman is my favorite what's yours what's mine Oh, man, I'm not playing the game. No. <laughs> you know, it, it's tough because I, I love my, you know, John Agar puts Revenge of the Creature right up there at the top. But Yeah, no, I love it. It's one of my top three. I also certainly. really, really enjoy The Invisible Agent. Uh, and I just find oh, that one to be a blast. That yeah, and that's that was really quite good. You know, and, and I really like House of Frankenstein because you get them all and Karloff comes back. Son of Frankenstein, you get the first Igor, which is amazing. But you know what? Yeah, that's true. I think, I think I'm going to go with Frankenstein meets the Wolfman too, because for my money, and I've said this repeatedly in the past, two people in person or just on the show, that uh, for my money, that film has one of the absolute best, most chilling, most eerie, most terrifying, most spooky resurrection scenes 
ever. Oh, I agree. I totally agree. And I when I watched it the other day, I've you know I've seen it probably dozens of times at this point. I was struck again just by how creepy the opening mm-hmm. of the film is. It's probably even creepier than when Anxanam and or Ananka, actually, I guess it is, then rises from the swamp in the last of the mummy yeah. movies, which is just an amazing resurrection scene, just wonderful. And the the scene where Lawrence Talbot comes back to life is just like, oh, man, they yeah. had the whole thing going. I mean, I would stack that up against any zombie movie any day. I would stack that up against, well, pretty much anything that's so good. And in some ways, it's very subtle, and it's got that great Salter Skinner music mm-hmm. going on. And the, and the lighting and the photography and stuff. I was thinking the other day that these, from probably after Son of Frankenstein on, the uh, the Universal Monster Pictures were budget pictures. They were B pictures. But they had A-level cinematography and, and uh, technical stuff and the music. And that makes, even though they didn't spend a lot of money on these, and The Wolfman's like 70 minutes long. And, you know, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman is like maybe four or five minutes longer in the House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula. They're all right in that 70-minute kind of wheel mark. Right. So they're not really long, but every moment of them is like really good. There's House of Dracula. There's some shots where the Mad Doctor's shadow is being cast across the room. You don't even see the Mad Doctor, but you see, you know, you see the nurse or the hunchback nurse and his shadow. And it's just like, Somebody spent a lot of time setting that shot up and thinking this would be a really cool way to do this. And so they've got wonderful atmosphere. And Anyway, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. It's got all that. And it's got a song and a, a really cool song, for that matter, that actually works in the context of the story. So, And I, I can't think of any of the other Universal films that even have a song in them, aside from The Phantom of the Opera. Which, you know, I mean, it's an opera, so there mm. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you're right. I mean, and there's a reason why there's always that moment at Monster Bash where they sing that, the Festival of the New Wine. You know, that that is part of the thing. And it's so, I don't know, man. It's just, it's one of those things that puts you right there. Puts you right there in the film. Yeah, it's cool. I don't know if Kurt Siodmak wrote that song or, or who wrote it. It fits perfectly with the film it gives you a nice break and then it it gives you that really emotional moment with uh, Lawrence Talbot with Lon Chaney who's just the wolf man is and we'll get into this it seems like he was born to play this role yeah but that was only question two right still got three more <laughs> that's right <laughs> only question two question number three who do you prefer Una O'Connor or Maria Ospenskaya oh man <laughs> I love them both. Uh-huh. Uh, Maria, having just watched her two Wolfman performances, she's freaking kills it. I have seen her in other films. Every time I see her as, as Maliva the Gypsy, I think, this is a real old gypsy woman that they put in this film. <laughs> she is a real gypsy woman. Yeah. Una O'Connor, on the other hand, I know some people can't stand her. I think she's freaking brilliant. You know, that character is supposed to be crazy and over the top, whether she's playing it in The Invisible Man or The the uh, um, the Bride of Frankenstein or wherever she is. She's supposed to be doing that, she, you know, in Robin Hood, just doing this similar kind of character. And she's brilliant at it. 
and I love her. I don't have any of this resentment that a lot of fans is like, oh, she's way out of place in this movie. And I, I totally disagree. I think they brought her in for a specific reason, and I think she does that perfectly. But head to head, I find myself sad that there isn't more Maria Smetskaya in the Universal canon, that she only did those two, as far as I know, those two appearances as the gypsy, because I love that character. And, you know, uh, I, I didn't put exactly that character into Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors, but, the, but there are gypsy characters, and it's all because she's so good at that. So her and Grayson Hall both played great, great gypsy characters, Grayson in the Dark Shadow series. So I, I guess if, I'm, if I have to pick, I'm going with Maria okay. just for that reason. Fair enough. Question number four. In your opinion, what's the most underrated Universal monster movie? Ooh. Um, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, not to go to this well too much. I would say House of Dracula. Really? I know- okay. Yeah. Cause- I am Count Dracula. You see before you a man who lived for centuries, kept alive by the blood of innocent people. When the full moon rises, I turn into a werewolf. With only one desire, to kill. I tried to perform the miracle of science and failed. My blood is contaminated with the blood of Dracula. I know a lot of people that don't like it, and I like it better than House of Frankenstein in a lot of ways. Mostly because, even though there are a lot of things that are very similar. House of Dracula actually seems to have a more continuous story through it. Whereas House of Frankenstein, in some ways it's almost set up like an anthology series. Okay. It's like there's a Dracula piece and there's a Wolfman piece and there's a Frankenstein monster piece and they overlap, but in some ways they don't really connect. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the House of Dracula, you start with the count having his medical problem and then introduce the Wolfman going to the same doctor. And then they interweave throughout the story until the end of the story and do some unexpected things too. For instance, with the, you know, spoilers with the, the doctor kind of going mad at some point because of his interactions with Dracula, which, you know, as, as a youngster and it's see coming, I know a lot of people think that's the least of the universal's cycle and certainly the least of the, the, the team up of the monsters, but I, I really, really like it. I like it a lot. And I think it's, it's generally underrated. Yeah. Cause it doesn't have Karloff in it, you know, and house of Frankenstein don't underestimate Karloff and Jay Carroll Nash as a force on the screen. Cause those guys are freaking awesome. Sure. Totally. For sure. But I think as a whole, I think house of Dracula works somewhat better than house of Frankenstein. House of Frankenstein also ends like really, really precipitously. It's just suddenly like, bang, Bang, everyone's dead. <laughs> and I think we get a little better flow on House of Dracula. So So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with that until until someone comes up with something that uh, is gonna convince me otherwise. House of Dracula. I do like House of Dracula, but again it's one of those ones that I didn't like at first because it just kind of peters out and you know, ah, come on, you know. I want more John Carradine, yeah, this other guy's Dracula, yeah, but 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 Again, as I've gotten older and kind of learned a little bit more and, and matured, yeah, I get it now. You know, I get it. So Right, yeah. The thing is that these films at 70 minutes long, they don't have a lot of time to waste. <laughs> True. So there, there are definitely scenes, although I don't think I'd change anything in The Wolfman. I think The Wolfman's a perfect movie. But 
all the other ones in that cycle. So, you know, the uh, the Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, especially not not Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I think that's pretty much got everything it needs in it too. But the other ones, there's there's always something that you you wish you could see a little more of. But they were like. Nope, we're going to get you in on the B-movie, the budget movie schedule. Mm-hmm. So behind the, the main picture, and you're going to come in at a, a crisp, fast 70 minutes. So I think that works against them in some instances. But on the other hand, it means they're incredibly tight, and you can watch you know all four of them over the course of one evening if you really want to, or, or two evenings fairly easily. So that's true. There you go. House of Dracula. That's for me. What about you? Well, you I love House of Dracula, but you know what? I would probably go to something that has not had a proper Blu-ray release yet. Universal. <laughs> like, like the ape would it woman. Be the, any of the wild woman yeah, set yeah, then? Like or the what? ape woman stuff. You know, a jungle captain, jungle woman, things like that. I want Anquanetta on Blu-ray. Yeah, and I do too. I, I would love to see those on Blu-ray. You know, I think probably, well, as we saw, initially they brought out just the Wolfman and Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, but didn't bring out the rest and took a while to get to them. So in some sense, the sequels are not as well regarded, I think, by Universal. And once you get into that, the ape woman thing, then it's just like, well, that's not not a character we feel like is really bankable, although you could make oh, you could make such a great set of uh, modern movies with that kind of thing mm-hmm. too it, it would really work <laughs> i agree i agree universal put put me in charge and and derek too put us in charge of the the dark universe and we will give you amazing things for not a huge amount of money <laughs> guarantee it we got joshua kennedy christopher mem to direct this stuff give them some real budgets and some you know some high quality actors that don't cost too much it's going to be amazing man right. we can dream all right, card number four. We're going to go to two of the big heavy hitters here when it comes to Universal Monsters. I think that's Monster. five, right? Oh, I think is, this is five. Is this five? Okay, five, whatever. I think so. I could be wrong. Yeah, I, I mean, we'll keep going, whatever. So, uh, yeah, two <laughs> of the big hitters when it comes to Universal Monster movie actors, Karloff and Lugosi. What's your favorite Karloff-Lugosi Universal collaboration? Uh, Son of Frankenstein. Really? Oh, wait. Hang on. We still have the black cat. I know. I was, I think it's the black cat. Yeah. <laughs> I love the black cat. Those two are the ones that was like, oh, push pull. If you're talking about sheer monsters, it's got to be Song of Frankenstein because they're amazing in that. But if you're talking about the two of them, you can't talk the Black Cat. The Black Cat is one of my favorite roles for both of those guys. Yeah, it's I make two of my favorite roles. The Lugosi character is maybe his best role in some ways, I think, and the Karloff character is too. You know, they're both playing well, against type. They are. I mean, it's not too against type for Karloff to be sinister, but usually, you know, and I watched a, a whole bunch of his mad scientist movies recently. Usually he's the mad scientist, but he's got some redeeming quality. And Helmar Polzig <laughs> in The Black Cat, he has no redeeming qualities. He is just, he's an evil Satanist, guys. And he loves it. <laughs> and he plays it and Lagosi is just wonderful as this you know kind of wounded crippled adversary that's trying just trying to regain his life and his family and mm-hmm. oh man it's like he's running into a meat grinder and and uh, the, the black cat's just it's an amazing and twisted little picture and so yeah I'm gonna have to go for the black cat 
on further consideration. But if you're talking sheer monsters, Son of Frankenstein. Uh, you know, I don't know where we are, uh, if this is four, five, six, or whatever. But I think that was five, but let's do one, one, let's more. Do one more just in case. All right, let's bring it back to Lon Chaney. What's your favorite Lon Chaney inner sanctum film? Uh, weird Women. This is the inner sanctum. Stones, jungle gods. You don't know what you're doing. I do. Norman, no. Woman or witch, temptress or killer, weaving a death curse with the black magic of an ancient cult. Starring Lon Chaney, Anne Gwynn, Evelyn Ankers, with Lois Collier, Ralph Morgan, Elizabeth Risden, Elizabeth Russell. This house is full of something evil. Evil. Yes, it's you. Don't. Why are you terrorizing my wife? I don't even care anymore what people are saying, laughing at oh, me. Oh, stop it. I never asked for such devotion from you, and I don't want it. Answer. Although I like all of them, and I was Hello? watching uh, a bio of Lon the other night, and there was one that they were showing a clip of and I was like, I don't really remember that one really well. So I'm probably going to have to go back and watch all of them. But Weird Women is a, you know, it's a, it's a great story by Fritz Lieber. Uh, it's got evil and anchors in it. And people have dissed Lon over the years for not being the greatest actor. I disagree. I think he's a really, really good actor, and I think he does really well in those roles, whether he's playing kind of an on-the-edge madman or a misunderstood character. Mm-hmm. He's he's good at that, you know, and that's and that's why I, he had some range, but he also had strengths, and his strengths was kind of the big lovable guy who's tortured, and that's why the Wolfman is kind of like his signature role. I can't think. I know they've did a, a more modern version, but I can't think of the Wolfman without thinking about Lon Chaney Jr. And sure. so anyway, the inner sanctum weird women just, it's a top notch kind of uh, uh, supernatural thriller thing. Yeah. And uh, remade again as night of the Eagle or burn, Witch burn, right? Yeah. All right. So that's the classic five that's, or six. That's the classic five or so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're just wasting your time. The wolf beat you, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. You wouldn't want to run away with a murderer, would you? Oh, Larry, you're not. You know you're not. I killed Bela. I killed Richardson. If I stay here any longer, you can't tell who'll be next. 
The Wolfman. I popped it in late last night before I went to bed. I was going to watch it this morning, but I didn't want to wait any longer. Besides, there's something just cool about watching these movies when it's dark outside. And you have that, and you add to it the opening bumper, I guess, the logo, Universal, the spinning globe. Mm -hmm. There's just something about that that puts you immediately in the perfect frame of mind. I adore that. I miss the globe, the spinning globe with the airplane going around. You know, I miss that. But still, the Wolfman's opening with the spin... Oh, it's just wonderful. Spinning globe with the spangles and stuff. I love that logo, and I'm not even sure how they did it. (laughs) I think it was kind of letters on transparent things. Anyway, yeah, no, it's great. And then you throw the music on top of it, and you are in the mood. Music by Salter and Skinner. Beautiful stuff. Who are some of uh, Universal's best score writers from the time mm-hmm. and did all sorts of things, including the classic Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. themes, some of which may have been in the Wolf Manor, vice versa. It's like, it all starts to blur together after a while and Universal treated it as a sound library. But yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's gorgeous music. It is something that and just... That, that, is it a three-note thing? Da, da, da. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And, yep. you know... Three notes. When Universal started their monster cycle with Dracula and Frankenstein and the mummy. Ah, the mummy's got a song in it, by the way, now that I think about it. There's a dance number, right? There's a dance sequence. Anyway. Oh, you're right. Those three films. I don't know if it's something you can sing along to. That's true. But (laughs) those films, they don't have a lot of music at all. At all. I mean, Bride of Frankenstein does start to get some, but Dracula's got Swan Lake at the beginning, and that's about it. The Mummy has Swan Lake at the beginning, and that's about it. Frankenstein has something, but not much. So, ten years later, Universal's got this film, The Wolfman, and they're throwing music into it, and I wouldn't have it any other way. It's just right. gorgeous no, the music. the lush. You know, it's got the, the Wolfman theme, it's got the love theme, it's got, you know, the kind of impending doom. Dun, 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 dun. You know, it's like, yeah, it's just, it's a soundscape of, of music and, and cues, and it's uh, it totally adds to the atmosphere of the film. It really does. So for those of you who somehow haven't seen this film, the story of the film is that Lon Chaney Jr.'s character, uh, Larry Talbot, returns to England after an extended, or Wales, after an extended stint in America learning learning uh, his craft as a, uh, a technician on telescopes and other machinery, returns home after his brother is killed to his dad, who is played by Claude Rains, who is like the lord of this local area in Wales. And a good foot and a half shorter than his sons. <laughs> right. And that happens, though. I know. You know just I've, to I've, see him standing next to each other is kind of amusing. Yeah, but they, they play so well together. Oh, yeah. it's, it's definitely that kind of... Well, you know, yeah, <laughs> he got the tall jeans <laughs> from somewhere from mom or something. Yeah, I want to know who mom was. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, while he's there, he falls, kind of falls for a shop girl who's engaged to somebody else, goes to a, a gypsy fortune telling thing with her and her friend where her friend is killed by uh, a werewolf played by Bela Lugosi, who's also a gypsy. Lon tries to prevent that happening, gets bit. And subsequently, when the moon is full and bright, 
turns into the wolf man who is then hunted by all the villagers who believe him to just be a wolf and don't believe the idea that Cheney has turned into a wolf man. And that that's pretty much the rest of the film is him being haunted by the fact that he's a wolf man and people pursuing the beast and never kind of quite catching it. <laughs> pretty much. Uh, and we also have, uh, you know, Maliva the Gypsy played by Maria Spinskaya. Did I, I mention that the girlfriend is played by Evelyn Anchors? I don't think I did. We have just a wonderful cast in this since we've gotten to that. So that's the brief synopsis of the story in case somehow you guys have missed it. I love this story. I love this film. This is one of my favorite universal films of all. It's right up there with Creature from the Black Lagoon, which I think those are my top, probably my top two universal monster movies. Wow. Period. There you go. Which I know probably endears me to you. But it's like as a kid, I was always like, my brother favored the Wolfman a little. I favored the creature a little. My brother, that's closest in age to me. And so I've literally, as long as I can remember, uh, going back to, you know, five, six, seven years old, I've always, before we'd seen the film, we loved the Wolfman from the pictures we'd seen in the Aurora model kits, right? Because isn't that the way a lot of us, uh, you know, if you're old enough, you probably learned about them not by seeing them, but by seeing pictures of them somewhere in a comic or something like that. So, Creature, the Wolfman, they're great. Mm -hmm. So, that's the basic story, and the the character then continued on to uh, uh, three straightforward sequels and one comedy sequel. You know, some people include that in the actual continuity. I kind of think it's an out-of-continuity out story, but we can talk about that later. Really? Okay. So, well, yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So the film itself, this is a good 10 years into the Universal Monster Cycle. So they figured out how to tell a good spooky story, and they cast it perfectly. Oh, yeah. Sure. You know, I made a crack about Bela playing Bela at the beginning of this. But, you know, he's perfect, and he's got that haunted, worn-out look that you would imagine somebody who's been cursed by this thing for years would have. I would like to know a little bit more about him just because I like Lugosi, but I mean that's perfectly cast. Yeah, we could have done a whole nother a whole nother film with that character. Shoot, I want to know what happened with John, uh, Larry's brother. I want to know what quote unquote right. hunting accident really happened. You know, there, there's right. a whole prequel possibility there. There is, and what I'd forgotten when I was watching it this time is that when Larry shows up, there's actually a portrait of John on the wall mm -hmm. in the manor, and he looks. Just like Larry. Yeah. <laughs> it's clearly they they had Lon Chaney Jr. pose for the, the portrait of his brother as well. And you were like, okay, and he died in a mysterious hunting accident? This is kind of – like you say, there's there's a, a prequel there. There's a prequel with Bela the Gypsy, certainly. You know, and Larry and John just, definitely took after their mother based on that portrait. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, as you noted, uh, I think uh, Lon is probably – Almost a foot taller than oh, Claude Rains. Yeah, Lon, what was he? he? Was like six foot two or something like guy. that. And and Rains is probably you know five eight maybe. Just on a guess. I, we haven't looked this up. I'm just guessing. <laughs> but there's a big disparity. But when you see the two of them together, they're both so good that I buy it immediately. I even I don't even care that Lon Claude has kind of a bit of a you know his European. English accent going and Larry who's been in the States for a long while doesn't doesn't bother me at all I completely buy into the fact that they're father and son that they had a strained relationship in the past mm -hmm. 
and that now they're going to try to get over that because, you know, life's too short and you can't, you know, you can't hold on to the past with your relatives, which is a good lesson for all of us to have. In addition to the skill of the players, which I think is a huge part of that, and we'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk more about about Lon and how this is kind of a perfect role for him. But we also have to put a lot of that on writer Kurt Siodmak, who wrote the original screenplay. Yeah, uh, Kurt Siodmak is a powerhouse. He contributed so much to just genre cinema overall as a writer, as a director. He did a lot. Not just this film, but he did uh, Donovan's Brain. Well, he did Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, among other things. He did Creature with the Atom Brain. He did all these films. He did 13 Demon Street, which is a series that I wish existed in a better form complete, which was an anthology series on TV that was hosted by Lon Chaney. You know, I would love... I don't think I've seen any of those. You know, a lot of it's not really available. Uh, Some of it didn't survive, unfortunately. Right, he did did Donovan's Brain. Yeah, he did Donovan's Brain. Riders to the Stars. He did... The Magnetic Monster. Yeah, Bride of the Gorilla. I mean, this guy... He's with five fingers. Yeah, just tons of stuff. Son of Dracula. You know, he he was all over. He wrote the screenplay for I Walked With a Zombie. I mean, come on. This guy is so important when it comes to these movies that we love. And he contributed so much to the werewolf mythos. So much that we attribute to the werewolf mythos comes from this film. He may not have created a lot of it. I, I know I've heard people say he created the silver bullets and werewolves thing. Well, as it, as it turns out, I just read a story the other night that was written in 1927 that talked about killing werewolves with silver bullets. Mm-hmm. So clearly that there was precedent for that. But what he did was he took all the myths and all the ideas and he combined them all together into what we now consider to be kind of the classic werewolf mythology. You know, the the full moon, the silver bullets and silver weapons, the, you know, the seeing the, the pentagram and the, the palm of the victims. the And especially, you know, the really famous rhyme, which they repeated three times <laughs> in a very short <laughs> yeah, span. I, I forgot that, that happened film. when we're watching the movie this time. I've around. forgotten how much they said it, how quickly, but clearly it's like. Are they hitting that nail on the head? Maybe, yes, maybe no. You know, it's like, I think it works. I think it works. Even a man who's pure at heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when wolf band blooms and the autumn moon is bright. Which then got changed a little in the later incarnation to when the moon is full and bright. Which is uh, maybe a, a little more on the nose, but the, it's a beautiful little poem. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Well, anything that comes out of Maria Ospenskaya's mouth is beautiful. Uh, right. The way the path you walked was thorny through no fault. I mean, all of it is just gorgeous. Right. Yeah, and she says that basically twice too. You know, and it's just she can totally sell it. She's what a what a character she was. What a an amazing actress. Yeah. So. Indeed. Yeah. So anyway, Kurt Siodmak. I don't think we can underestimate the fact that one of the reasons we like these characters is how deftly he handles the screenplay and how deftly he sets up the conflicts and the relationships in the story. So the relationship, you know, for instance, with with uh, Gwen, the uh, the character, the love interest character, who is she's kind of grown up here and she's engaged to this one guy who she clearly is fond of but she's engaged to marry him and as soon as hunky Larry Talbot shows up she's like well maybe I have other options (laughs) 
So I want to talk about that um, because this is a complaint that I hear about this film now that Larry Talbot doesn't take a hint that she says no repeatedly and it just goes right over his head or he chooses to willfully ignore the fact that she's engaged, that she's not interested, that sort of thing. And I think there's some validity to that criticism. But, I, but, but that's also seeing it through very modern eyes. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that. And additionally, this time I watched it paying very close attention to what Anchors was doing. Really paying attention to everything going on with Conliffe, with Gwen Conliffe. And the body language that she's using and the, the twinkle in her eye and the smile. And, you know, it goes beyond that. Well, she's being friendly to him, so it must be. And she wants him. You know, I mean, it's not that. There, there is a chemistry there that she's contributing to. So yep. I, I would say that in this particular instance, maybe that's not as warranted. Of course, I'm a dude. Right. So maybe I'm defending the actions of a dude too much. I don't know. It is creepy that he spies on her with a telescope. That's weird. It, but That is, but that's also not that weird either because it's, you know, until the modern age where there were cameras freaking everywhere and, and you carried one around and that kind of stuff, it wasn't unusual for a guy to watch a, an attractive girl from across the room, across the street, or with a telescope. You know, it's like, oh, I'm testing my telescope out and there's a girl I'm going to look at the girl yeah but that's still not cool <laughs> and so, well maybe not but it's at the time I mean you can see at the time she's like taken aback and a little upset but Evelyn Anchors is such a brilliant actress that you can tell that she's a little bit flattered too because she's you know she's for whatever reason, she's not quite happy with the way her relationship is going. And so she's, you know, it's like she's offended and she hopes he's, and one of the, the you know, another great moment, acting moment for Lon is that he realizes that he shouldn't, it's not something he should have done. And if he did do it, he probably shouldn't have told her. <laughs> but at the same time, he's, he's sorry for it. He doesn't say, I'm not going to do it again. But I think it's pretty clear from the way he acts that he's he's not he's not intending to do it again. Right. That that he is sorry for it, that he didn't mean to be creepy about it. And I think in the 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 pre electronic age, there was a lot more room for making mistakes like that and being forgiven from mistakes like that. Because the way men and women met in those days was often through little circumstances through seeing someone, you know, some enchanted evening across a crowded room, you know, and, and acting toward each other in ways that modern people wouldn't do or wouldn't want to do or would feel like is stalking or Facebook stalking or that kind of stuff. But if you saw, you know, an attractive girl on the other side of the square that you thought, oh, I'd really like to know her, and then she vanishes into the crowd. It wouldn't be unusual for, you know, and I use a girl, it could be a guy too. It, it wouldn't be unusual for the guy or the person in question to then talk to people that they knew, talk to other people in the square, say, did you see this girl? Do you know who she, who she is? Do you know where she's from? And that kind of stuff. You had to meet through personal connections or through coincidences or that kind of stuff back in those days. So seeing an attractive girl in your telescope and then going down and, and trying to see if you can meet her and impress her 
It's not that crazy in in the 1940s or 30s or 20s or, you know, any time before that when communities were much smaller and people were much more insular. Do you know what I'm saying? I hear what you're saying and I hear where you're coming from. Again, it's not enough to make me say, oh, well, you know, this movie's terrible. Talbot's a terrible character. No, this this is a guy who kind of bumbles his way into seeing you know, a woman across the way that he becomes attracted to. And I think it's really important to point out that this is a time way, way, way before no means no. This is a time where if you if you just watch the movies from the time where when a woman says no, Sometimes she's not saying no. Sometimes she's saying, convince me, or I don't know you well enough, and again, or something like man, that. Take all this stuff that we're saying, taken out of context, it's going to sound terrible. But uh, <laughs> um, Well, it might, but that's by modern standards, too. Yeah, and that's something to keep in mind regarding films of the time. Uh, how stories are being told, and not just horror films, not just genre movies, but no, 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 you know, no, the it doesn't have anything films, to do. You know, all the you know right. the, the screwball comedy, you know, all of that. It was a different way of presenting relationships between men and women, and that's why I said I was paying a lot of attention to what Anchors was doing, because if it was a no, you know, foot down, we're done. Well, then Lon does kind of push it a little bit, or Talbot does push it a little bit. On top of that, Talbot doesn't just remain a creeper. He stumbles across seeing her, and then he goes and does the right thing by introducing himself. He doesn't, you know, stalk her throughout the rest of the film. Right. Well, and then he has this encounter with her, and she's like, well, I'm not interested. She says she's not interested. But, again, back before the no means no culture, which is a good thing. I I don't want people to think that no means no. I think that's bad. But I'm telling you that in 1941, no no did not always mean no. Now it does. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's good that we've defined that because clearly there were gray areas here that some people had trouble figuring out. So when she says no, she's like, no, I'm not interested in going to you with, you know, out with you tonight. But then somehow when he shows up, when he said he would, she's there waiting for him. <laughs> and and looking for him, like expectantly and looking, looking for him. For and him. like yeah. clearly a little disappointed that he's not right spot on the dot. But because she's still kind of not sure, she's brought a friend along. And, you know, I don't know about you, Derek, but, and I'm older than you. <laughs> no. Yeah, I've started my seventh decade on the planet, which means I just hit 60 recently. That scene where he's like trying to have a date with this girl and she's not quite sure. But she she's like kind of interested a little and shows up with a friend. That's freaking happened to me, man. It's happened to probably every person of my age. <laughs> and where they're like, okay, I'm I'm bringing a friend along. In theory, they're for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe they maybe they really are. Maybe that's the intention. But there's also kind of a at least until I figure out whether you're the one for me. Sure. And so you know, in some ways, this is. The relationships in this movie and in movies from this era are in some ways, I think, a lot more subtle than relationships are nowadays where where we have kind of much more straightforward rules for what, you know, what if you say no, that means no. Again, she's saying no, but she's not really saying no to him because no didn't mean no then. You know, if you look up when no means no became a thing, you're going to see it's like 40 years later or something like that. Sure. 
And he knows that, and she knows that. So they're both playing by the same rules, but they're not the rules that we play by today. They're not even close to the rules we play by today. And in some ways, they're much more confusing because he's got to say, okay, she's saying no, but I'm looking at her body language, and she's she's kind of saying yes. So what's it going to hurt if I show up at the end of the day after her shop closes to see if we can go off to the carnival together? You know, if he shows up and she's not there, then, you know, if I'm him or back in the day, then he probably thinks, well, maybe she really did mean no. But maybe I'll give it a try again. Maybe I'll see if she's at the carnival. Maybe I'll, you know, then there might be some other steps to see if it was a hard no or if it was a no, not right now, no, convince me, no, but kind of thing. Maybe we've gone on too long yeah, about this. I was but I feel say, like I'm getting a, more and more uncomfortable the more we're talking about. I feel like it's, it's important yeah. that we place the thing, place the relationship in the context of the times as well as the context of the movie. Because I feel like, whenever I hear that complaint about this movie, I feel like people are judging that with eyes that are literally 80 years past when the movie was made, right? And it's just not, not well, I'm, yeah, 80. I've got my math right. And it just it's just not the same thing. It's, you know, like, the and, you know, the 60s has a somewhat different set of rules than the 70s. And then, you know, rules, the rules of, of relationships change over time. You know, even though the, the biology is similar, the how people interact with each other change over, over the course of human history. It's just the way it is. Uh, so don't, don't judge it by now. Look at the way they play to each other. Try to read between the lines and what they're really saying. Try to see what they are. Because clearly they're attracted to each other. And that's the important thing. Even though, you know, he's just here an innocent abroad and she's the girl that grew up in town and is engaged to the, the guy that's got a pretty good position with the Lord's Manor. Clearly there's more going on there. And the, the characters, I think, convey that very well. Let's, so, let's move on. Let's move on because... Um, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I mean, I agree with you. I, I do. And, and I will defend this film uh, on certain levels, but then I realized that I'll say something like, well, her body language said yes, which is a terrible thing to say regarding. Well, no, I know. But, I know. I, you know, and when I was saying that, I'm oh, thinking I, that I'm not saying that is the, mm-hmm. the entirety of what the no means no movement was about right. was getting beyond that objection because that was the main objection. Well, she said no, but she meant yes. And yes, we needed to get beyond that. And I'm glad we have. Yeah. So, but that was not the rules they were playing by back well, then. Well, even if they, you know, even if they were, clearly she has interest because she does continue to refer to Larry and follow up with Larry and make sure Larry's okay and she's doing all the things that a romantic interest would do in a film like this. Let's move on with this segue. How about that? Part there of the reason go. why there is such uh, a chemistry here is because of the two performers. Cheney and Anchors were gold together. Whenever they were on screen together, it's amazing, despite the fact that they really didn't like each other in real life. Uh, yeah. Which is a totally hard. <laughs> which, always ami- which always blows so my hard mind. To because every movie they are in together, you can feel the attraction between them because they're so good together. Yeah. And the fact that they didn't like each other just, I think that just tells you how great actors they are. Yep. They both are because they have the chemistry. They have that thing. It's here and it's in every movie they appeared 
in together, which was a good number of them. I don't remember how many. It's like six, eight, ten, something like that. Uh, Do you know? I think it was like seven. They're gold, you know? And sometimes you put two characters together, you know, William Powell and Myrna Loy, and they, they become best friends, and you can see it on the screen, and they love each other, and they're gold. But sometimes it's two actors that maybe don't get along so well, and this, this is a perfect example of that. And they're both really good at their jobs. They're both great actors. Yeah. And uh, and this is a good role for her. It's it's more complex, and again that goes back to Siadnak than the usual love interest in a film like this, you know, which is, you know, kind of a, the the unattached woman who falls for the hunky man. She's not the unattached woman. She's attached. She's engaged. She's engaged, and her father spends some time. Her character father in this in the film spends some time defending her <laughs> against the kind of mean little old ladies who think, oh, she's scandalous, modern woman. You know, and then there's some of that kind of modern woman thing going on, too. It's during the war, you know, when there's uh, women's roles are changing and there are people that are not comfortable with that. And that's reflected in the screenplay, too, in, in terms of how the, the women of the village and the you know, the mother of her friend who gets killed doesn't blame the wolf that, that killed her, the wolfman that killed her. She blames Gwen for not being with her, her daughter every moment and being off philandering with uh, with uh, Larry Talbot. So this so. this was the first film that the two of them did together, uh, Evelyn and Lon. Uh, they appeared in eight films together of those. We have The Ghost of Frankenstein, Son of Dracula, Weird Woman, and The Frozen Ghost being the monster movies that they did together. There are a couple other things as well here. But you know when he started doing the Inner Sanctum films, he was loving it. I mean, he, he wanted to be the romantic lead. He wanted to be the Clark Gable. He wanted to be the dashing romantic guy. So to put him in these weird these Inner Sanctum films, you know, he's got the little mustache and he's all sophisticated. You know, he had, that was awesome. Right, yes. He was perfect for that. He's got, he's got the Warren William mustache. Yes, <laughs> yes. Warren, who's another character, a minor character in this film. And I, so. and I think it's telling that when we talk about our favorite Inner Sanctum film, it's the one with... Cheney and Evelyn, you know, Evelyn well, or yeah. one of the two anyway. So yeah, right. You know, it's the, just... the one that pops right into your head, and that's again, it's their interaction that kind of makes it wonderful. I think it's important to talk about. This was Lon Cheney Jr.'s role. This is this role seems made for him, you know. And watching a little bit of the bio, knowing you know about him being the you know the son of a famous actor who didn't want him to go into acting, but him having that bug anyway and kind of making his way up and doing uh, Lenny of Mice and Men. This is the role for him because it's got the sweet side, which everyone that interacted with him aside from maybe evil and anchors who talked about what a sweet guy lon was right mm -hmm. he was a sweet guy you know it's like when the, the little girl in frankenstein whose name i'm i'm spacing on right now on in the ghost of frankenstein this little girl he interacts with her mom was killed or died somehow right and lon offered to adopt that child and her brother <laughs> Because he loved children that much, you know, and he was a he was a kind of a generous, giving kind of guy. People loved this guy, and so he got to play that guy, that that lovable guy. And then, you know, to use the cliche, the the Mister Hyde version of that guy, which is the Wolfman, the guy he can't control, the guy that kills people, the guy that is hairy and violent, and. Clearly, you know, if you if you hear stories about when he was drinking and that kind of stuff, he you know, he had 
he had a, a rough and tumble, violent kind of side to him, not necessarily toward other people. But he had his demons, you know. The Wolfman gives him a chance to play kind of both sides, play the, the things that really anguished him. And that's why I think maybe he's so good in the role. It's both sides of the Larry Talbot character are, I think, honest portrayals of things he himself was feeling. Not to say that that's the only reason, because he's a good actor. Mm-hmm. But I think he had that extra to draw on, and that's why the, the character is so seamless for him. We completely buy that he can, he can be this sweet guy who suddenly, for no reason of his own, because he was trying to do the right thing, is cursed with turning into a monster. And man, does he get it. Oh, and yeah. it's, having watched the whole cycle of these, he just kills it in every one of these movies. Oh, yeah. He's just of the group, The House of Frankenstein, which has him in it somewhat less, is the, one of the weaker ones in the group. When he's on screen, he holds the movie together. You care about him. You want to know things are going to turn out for him. He's the only one of the early Universal monsters that that you have sympathy for. I mean, you have some sympathy for the Frankenstein monster because he's kind of a freak and and he's persecuted. But Lon Chaney and Larry Talbot is someone I think we all can identify with because we all have parts of us that maybe we don't like as much and that we are glad doesn't come out. And we can feel that every time he's on screen, I want him to win. I want him to be cured. I want him to not lose to the beast, which he does again and again and again through the series until the last film. So, and even then, depending upon where the Abbott and Costello falls uh, in continuity or out of continuity. I think that's one of the reasons I I love the Wolfman. And, And weirdly... The creature is kind of a similar character in some ways because he's kind of put into a situation where he doesn't want to be in and has to fight back. And I think we all identify with that as a as kind of a situational thing, too. Mm-hmm. So we have some – maybe that's why the creature is one of the other ones that feels the same to me because he's just – if the people left him alone, none of this would happen. True. You know, so we sympathize with that. We sympathize with living a happy life within your own situation, and then someone comes in and screws it up, and you've got to fight back. And the Wolfman is, is a different side of that, but it's they're both very sympathetic characters, which is why I think I probably like them a lot. The Wolfman is more obviously sympathetic because he's a human being. Sure. Who turns into something nasty when the autumn moon is bright. Everything that he had done up until this point, he had been preparing for this role, whether he knew it or not. I mean, he started appearing in films back in the 20s, probably as a child extra in some of his father's stuff, right? Uh, But then he started doing more and more work. He was being called Creighton Cheney, which was his given name. When he took on the name Lon Cheney, I don't think that was his choice. That was a studio mandate, wasn't it? I've heard both now, recently. And it was like, I think the, the studio wanted him to do it, from one of the docs I was watching, it seems like he'd kind of dead-ended as that second thug character mm-hmm. in a way, in the, in the same way that there was a point in Bogart's career where he couldn't play anything else but gangsters, right? And that's all Warner wanted him to play, and it actually took, you know, kind of a, a step outside for him to get up. And I, I think 
Creighton Cheney was kind of trapped in that same kind of a, okay, you're the second guy from the left in the undersea kingdom or whatever that, that Ray Crash Cargan thing is. You you know, you're like the, the goon below the goon, the the kind of characters Raymond Burr played a lot before he became Perry Mason on TV. Mm, Um, So I think he was kind of stuck there. And at that point, taking on your famous dad's name, it's got to help. <laughs> it's got to help, but it's also, I would imagine, have to be a little bit of a, you know, a, a, an anchor because it really kind of defines what you're going to be able to do. And, right. you know, that does, I feel like, creep up a little bit in his performance as Larry Talbot. He is being controlled by forces outside of himself. Plus, you've got what he did up until this point of Mice and Men. How much of right. Lenny makes its way into Larry? I mean, so much, I feel like, right? Right. And then Man-Made Monster as well being the, the trial run of Lon Chaney Jr. as a monster for Universal. There's some things happening to that character. That character is so much like the Wolfman character in so yeah, many he's, ways. He's the proto-Talbot. Right. You know, Lenny is kind of the big, lovable, potentially violent guy. Mm-hmm. The character in Man Made Monster, he's brighter than Lenny, but not as smart as Larry. <laughs> right. But he's still that level, that big kind of lovable lug. The the step forward with the Wolfman is that Larry Talbot is a guy that you can believe is someone that could tune up a telescope that's been put together in pieces that he's put together to make it work. You believe that he's smart and he's lovable. And then he has this dark side, which, you know again, is that dichotomy, that Jekyll and Hyde dichotomy is something I think everyone identifies with to some degree. And the and being caught in circumstances beyond your control, which as you say, I think he probably had to take on his dad's name to make his career go forward. Right. And I I'm sure that the studio was happy about it. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> because they didn't actually credit him as Lon Chaney Jr. a lot. A lot of times it was just Lon Chaney. Yeah. Like his dad had never died. Which is you know, that's a certainly a double-edged sword what a tribute though it is to both of them that you can say you know i saw a lon cheney film and people will go junior or senior like the continuation and the equality between those two men and the the father and the son it's like yeah if you saw a good film with lon cheney in it it could be either one of them and in some sense that's great but Again, that's that's another burden on his shoulders, and I think again that all that kind of starts to show through in the Wolfman. It shows through in the Inner Sanctum Mysteries quite a lot too. But the Wolfman is just—he owns it. He owns it, and it's it's just you know we've seen we've seen many other Wolfmen over the years, and and there are some really good ones. I like Nashie a lot, but Larry Talbot dominates the screen. So yeah, so we've got great we got great actors, and then you you populate the the rest of the movie with. Really, really great actors, too. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, Claude Rains. Everybody knows how good an actor Claude Rains is, whether he's, you know, whether he's doing Louis in Casablanca or whether he's the the evil Nazi scientist in uh, a Hitchcock film. And then we got, you know, we got Warren William, who's a very minor part as the doctor, who was uh, Perry Mason in a number of the old Perry Mason movies. He started off certainly as a leading man, kind of transitioning toward a character actor at this point. Ralph Bellamy <laughs> is just is kind of wonderful and and funny, and you know, there's the if you haven't seen him in other stuff, is he's just fabulous in his Girl Friday with uh, with Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell as her 
boyfriend, which has, you know, kind of a, a weirdly similar setup in which the, you know, the woman's engaged to one guy, but Cary Grant refuses to give up on his ex-wife. So, uh, Bellamy's wonderful. Patrick Knowles. He's in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman too, and he's a, a really st- a strong, solid actor. It's kind of an A list of casters, and even the you know the minor characters. The uh, the gala plays uh, Gwen's friend Jenny. Mm-hmm. It's Faye Helm. She's very good. But the the top of the list, you know, if you, if you go down the list from Lon Chaney, Claude Rains, Warren William, Ralph Bellamy, Patrick Knowles, Bela Lugosi. And we, you know, we talked briefly about Bela, but Bela is Bela, and Bela is freaking brilliant. Yep. All you had to, all you had to do was give him a good role and a budget and a film that has a decent, decent budget, and you're going to get gold. And pretty much all the other times, you're going to get silver or gold anyway. Yeah, I was going to say you don't need the budget. All the poverty role films, he made Dendums better. Yeah, yeah, it did some great, great work in films that had no budget at all. Sadly, for sadly for his pocketbook, Maria Spinskaya and Evelyn Anchors. I mean, that's like eight top flight actors mm-hmm. right there you know it's just uh, it's a, it's a, an amazingly well cast film i want to i want to talk about a, an actor or a character in this that uh, stood out to me more this time than yeah. had any other time i'd seen the film twiddle <laughs> <laughs> i don't know why but he just amused me to no end this time around which character is that? Okay, so he's played by Forrester Harvey, and he's out there while they're investigating, trying to find out what happened. They find the dead body of Bela, and they find the, the, the wolf tracks and all that, and they're always saying, make a note of that, Twiddle. Make a note of that, Twiddle. Oh, there's right, just, right, There's right, something yeah. about him. <laughs> Ralph Bellamy is always, yeah. he's like the... The, uh, <laughs> the, the the local the law, basically, the yeah. Inspector, yeah, something like that. Yeah, make a note of that twiddle. <laughs> oh, okay, you know. So all that right. we said at the beginning about how this one didn't need the comic relief. I guess maybe there's a little bit here. I don't know why I was drawn to this guy, but I want to know more about Forrester Harvey, the actor, just because of Twiddle. And you're right about that. And and I did notice that when I was I was watching it too. I, I just uh, momentarily forgotten it about that character and that's it did it did oh, strike me as i was dude, watching it that what he played una's husband in the invisible man he was the other oh, guy yeah did. of course he did <laughs> so yeah there's our guy there's our right. there's our o'connor connection <laughs> I, I was thinking as i was watching it this time that the ralph bellamy cop character and twiddle they kind of are the the comic relief because in theory, they're the like the dogged pursuit, but the way Bellamy plays him, he's like playing him as a cliche of the dogged policeman inspector character, and there's something funny about that yeah. in the way he's doing it. He's not nodding and winking at us, but just the way he's playing it, the way and he's playing it so super straight that it's it's funny and it's amusing, and that's that's nice in a in a film that has some very grim and creepy sequences in it. Um, like there's the, the scene in the crypt where Bela, the gypsy is dead. That's very creepy. The scene in the, where poor Larry Talbot tries to go to church. Oh man. Is, is creepy and uncomfortable and stuff. And as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, look at all they've packed into 70 minutes, man. Yeah. Look at, all of this stuff that they got in, all of these scenes. And this is a golden age for Universal. Well, just Hollywood in general, where they're making these sets. 
you know, this isn't something shot in a studio somewhere or whatever. These are actual huge locations that they're filming in, and it it reads so well on the screen. That church bit, when he comes stumbling out of the church after being basically shunned by everybody in there, that's just made all the more powerful by him being able to lean against the structure of the church and just kind of, Oh man, you just want to help him up and, and, and give him a hug and tell him it's going to be okay, you know? Because <laughs> right, yeah, the church itself was... feels like it's it's the, the building itself feels like it's physically coming down on him because of how big right. and weighty it is. It's just something about that style of filmmaking that I miss in modern day cinema. Well, and, and a lot of that is is the budget and being able to add the add the sets that you need mm-hmm. and the, get the the look. I don't know if uh, you know it's entirely possible that they had. Uh, the set from you know, Hunchback of Notre Dame or something that that's the cathedral from. I, I don't know. I, I seriously questioned that, though. I was like, is that, could that be? He's like, no, well, maybe, you know, I had that thought. Maybe. <laughs> it's hard to say without without digging a lot deeper than we had time to in the, in the couple of days we had prepped. I would love for it to have been. I think it'd be great, you know, neat little bit of filmmaking connections if it really was considering – you know, the father played the hunchback and all that, but yeah, probably not. Right. We're probably not that lucky. And there's, there's a lot to be said too. Uh, we talked a little bit about the cinematography generally in this series. And this, this movie is a prime example of it with the, the light and the shadows and the fog and the creepy forest and stuff. But there's something also to be said by the, of the direction by George Wagner, who gives us the right shots at the right time pretty much the whole way through, mm-hmm. you know, the, the scene where he was, walks into the church, we get a long shot tracking down the aisle where I don't think Lon is even in in frame. It's from his point of view mm-hmm. as he's walking toward the front of his church where his dad, who's the, the Lord of the Manor, is seated and all the heads are everything goes quiet and as he walks, row after row the heads turn toward him and you can see that they think he's somehow involved with the gypsy being dead and this girl being dead and they don't like him. And he gets all the way to the front of the church before he turns around. And in that last row, there's his dad and there's his Warren Williams, who's playing William, who's playing the doctor. And the doctor doesn't look too, <laughs> his dad is his dad, right? He doesn't look like he's really upset, but you can see in the doctor's face that the doctor's a little worried about this guy. Yeah. Right? And it's like, I can't even go to the front of the church without everyone staring at me. And he, and he retreats out of the church. It's a great scene it really and is. great choices of the cameras and how to set up the scenes. You know, I don't, I don't know a lot about George Wagner. Uh, he did, uh, he directed man-made monster. So maybe that was a, you know, dead bang easy choice for uh, for having him do this one too and, and it worked as far as I'm concerned because you know he did a great job with that first one and he he does another great job here uh, it's really good it looks like he did a lot of uh, a lot of TV work at the at the end of his career but uh, those two films he, he launched Lon's career in in style great great job great choices yeah you're not gonna get an argument for me here I think the direction in this is really really well done. I know we always talk about James Whale and, and Todd Browning, maybe not in the same reverence, but we talk about those two being so important to the Universal Monster uh, thing. But George Wagner, 
Yeah. I mean, without oh, him, I, I don't know if this film would be nearly as effective. Lon Chaney's performance would certainly shine through, but there are some really cool choices made regarding the way the film is constructed, the pacing. The, the full-on transformation scenes, we don't get a full-on transformation scene through most of the film. And right. I think that was a very wise choice. I love Jack Pierce's makeup. I love the lap dissolve. Mm-hmm. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and they, he makes the good choice to kind of withhold the transformations in order to build the suspense. So there's one where, you know, you see the footprints leading out the window and the footprints gradually change from human into wolf. That's wonderful, by the way. That is so cool. Yep. Yeah. And I think that actually might be when you, eventually you get the first reveal of the wolf man as he peers around one of these gnarled trees and the you know when i was a kid and even today i have a hard time thinking of those the tree sets the the area of the gypsy camp i have a hard time thinking of those as sets <laughs> i know they are <laughs> right i mean despite what i just but they're convincing enough to me that they don't feel like sets and i know that they're sets and that they were populated with this uh, kerosene fog or whatever it was that they were using which was apparently really hard on the actors and made the trees slimy and all that kind of stuff but man it works it looks real to me mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm totally totally buying it it's it is exactly the right kind of environment for the wolfman uh, it seems built to his scale too, unlike things that would be larger, say for the Frankenstein monster or even Dracula. Probably, it's like it's a lot of things for the Wolfman to prowl around. I know. I just went and on and on and on about like the buildings being real and it's not being a set. But yeah, some of these were obviously sets. But I feel like this set works better than the graveyard set in Frankenstein or the Bride of Frankenstein. It's just something about the way it was shot, and maybe it's because they're getting better at filmmaking technology. They yeah. use a lot more fog, but it's just it feels more real to me i have to like i said i have to keep reminding myself that this is a set i know this was a set because i'm completely convinced that it's not i'm completely convinced that it's a it's a complete environment out in the world somewhere that's you know a blasted heath that has these moors and these tangled trees and this little little gypsy camp in the middle of this kind of denuded forest and stuff it's just so brilliant set design and all that kind of stuff. And the same for the the manor house that uh, Larry and his dad live in. It's just, I have a hard time thinking of it as, as a set. And I think that's the, the real success of a, an art director and set designer uh, in these old movies is that you, you completely buy that it's a real space. And you don't think that, oh, yeah, there's, uh, you know, there's lights and, cam- and camera equipment just beyond the edge of what we can see. So I, I never think about that. And, and thinking about it just now, it occurs to me that actually, I think, is part of the thing that makes a difference between what we perceive as a low-budget picture and what we don't perceive as a low-budget picture. Because as much as, you know, I like a lot of our filmmaker friends – there's almost always a spot in their films where I'm thinking, oh, that's a set. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a set. Yeah, or that's fair. that's a very, t- very tiny room that they've crammed a camera in or something like that. And with these universal pictures, even though, as we discussed, they're, they're B, B for budget, they're B pictures, they weren't spending a lo- whole lot of money on them. They had the sets that they either built or they had from an existing thing and they reused. They had enough sets that they were always 
a convincing whole space that these characters existed in. And people have called it like a, a universal monster in Never Never Land because it's not, you know, it's not the United States. It's somewhere nebulous in Europe, in Wales, in, you know, in uh, Frankenstein, in, in some other place like that. And that maybe gives them a license to be maybe a little more fantastic with it than if it were, say, New York City. But it works. Sure. And you buy into the fact that this is the environment in which there there totally could be a wolfman. I need to start wrapping up. So I want to just briefly touch on how this set the groundwork for basically the path of the Universal Monster movies moving forward. Without it, we wouldn't have had Frankenstein meets a wolfman, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. We just wouldn't have any of that without this film. And so much of it is due to the work of Lon Chaney and company. I think without that, probably wouldn't have the universal cycle as we know it today. Right. No, we totally wouldn't. I mean, we would just have the occasional monster film coming out for them and not kind of as this kind of scattershot approach that they had in the 1930s where it's like, okay, we did Frankenstein. So let's do Dracula. We did Dracula. Let's do the invisible man. We did the invisible man. Maybe we can do another we can do the mummy. Maybe we could do another Phantom of the Opera. They did Bride of Frankenstein and Daughter of Dracula, but they weren't kind of. They didn't have a character that was strong enough that audiences clearly wanted to see that character again and again and again. And I'm pretty sure, even though they, you know, with Ghost of Frankenstein, they're keeping the Frankenstein thing rolling, and the monster is clearly popular, but clearly it's the Wolfman that drives these other films, that makes these other films special, that makes them want to make these films, because they've got Lon Chaney playing this character, and they can go to that well again and again and again, and people like it. So you get the Wolfman in 41, you get Frankenstein meets the Wolfman in 43, you get uh, House of Frankenstein in 44, and House of Dracula in 45, I think, if, if I'm remembering right. That sounds about and right. Then sounds about right. And then Abbott Costello in 48. So by the end of the war, the monster cycle had sadly kind of wound down. People were tired of horror, probably because of <laughs> the horrors in Europe and Asia. But the they hung the whole thing on the Wolfman, and I think the success of this and the idea that they could do sequels goosed up in their minds the idea that they could do more Frankenstein movies. Uh, and Frankenstein, of course, meshed into the Wolfman uh, at this point, too. But then they also did the whole series of mummy movies at that time, too. And surprisingly, only only one Dracula, the son of Dracula, with uh, with Lon in it, which is it's a really good movie. I'm not sure he's the greatest Dracula of all time. I might have liked to see Carradine in that role, but but it's a it's a really good movie. So you know, I hate to complain. Yeah. <laughs> Without the Larry Talbot character, I mean, and and I think maybe that's the key, right? Sure, we can project certain things onto the Frankenstein's monster. Dracula is a villain. You know, we really don't right. want to identify with the villain, right? Maybe we right. identify with being treated like a monster, like Frankenstein's monster, but Larry Talbot but he's still a monster. Yeah, Larry Talbot <laughs> is our touchstone. He's the guy right. that's going to bring us in. Right. And that's why this movie is so good. It all hangs on that performance and his performance is brilliant. He's lovable and yet he can be threatening too. 
And it's funny, there's a, a point in uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Larry Talbot is with Abbott and Costello, and he's like really happy to see them. And you see that sweet side of Larry Talbot, the one that's harried and is happy just to make human contact and that kind of stuff. And then Lou Costello says something really stupid and insensitive. <laughs> and snap, in an instant, suddenly Lon Chaney Jr. has him by the lapels and is kind of picking him up and shoving him toward the wall so forcefully that he knocks Bud Abbott out of frame and <laughs> onto the floor. And it's like, why did you say that to me? And you're like, whoa. <laughs> cool down because – yeah. But at the same time, you still identify with the fact that he made that sudden, that sudden break into tortured again, because all he's trying to do is he's trying to regain his life and he's trying to regain normalcy. And these two jokers are are making fun of him. <laughs> at night, I turn into Which, a wolf. You and everybody else, yeah. I mean. He goes from one to the other very quickly, and you totally buy it, and you believe it, and you don't hate him for it. And I think that's the key with Larry Talbot, is that no matter how much bad stuff he or the Wolfman do, you don't hate him for it. So at the end, when at the end of, uh, spoiler, 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 <laughs> end of House of Dracula, he's, the Wolfman is cured, seemingly, or perhaps forever. Mm -hmm. You're like... Oh, thank God. And you don't think, well, now they'll have to put him on trial for all those murders. <laughs> Which popped into my head as I was thinking about it. It's like, you're thinking, we forgive you, Larry. We know it wasn't your fault. <laughs> and that's that's what's quite an accomplishment for someone that's, you know, caused a, a large amount of chaos and death for four films and off screen reference deaths even more. Yeah. So amazing, amazing work by one of the, the great horror actors. You know, as far as I'm, I'm concerned, I know we get to Agar and that kind of stuff, but the, the three great horror actors from this time period are, are Karloff, Lugosi, and Cheney. You will not get any, any argument from me, sir. And I think that's one of the Good. reasons why we're friends. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> Another reason why we're friends is because I like what you do. And before we wrap up, I want people to know what you do. So let's talk a little bit more about Professor... Cushing and everything coming up with that. Where can people find it? Dr. Cushing. Uh, Dr. Cushing. I'm sorry. Dr. Cushing. He was a professor once upon a time, but he got a well, see, I knew that. I knew I was just giving you, a, you know, <laughs> anyway. So Dr. Cushing can be found at uh, CushingHorrors.com, which is going to take you to my Patreon where you can throw a dollar or two at me a month to support it. And you can read the entire novel for free on Patreon or on my site. And I'm hoping by the end of the year that I'll have it out in print and full ebook form. Uh, and there is, if you join the site, if you were supporting me during the Dr. Cushing at the end of the whole thing, I did send you a PDF of the entire thing to read. So if you join up now and you implore me, I might send that to you. But you can also watch and read the, the Frost Harrow stories, which are going now being released every other every other week. So on the 1st and the 15th of the month on, on my site, which is sdsullivan.com is the the short and easy way to remember it or you can spell my whole name out stephen d sullivan.com and uh 
try to keep uh, keep monsters in your mind as part of the Monster Conservancy, which uh, Derek and a bunch of our friends are also part of. And you can uh, join us in the Monster Conservancy at SaveMonsters.com on Facebook. And just look for the, the destination interspace monster in the red or green circle. There you go. Well, Steve, this was an absolute blast. I'm glad we did it. Me too, as always, despite the technology. Yeah, you know, if whatever. only we had 1940s technology. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> then this call would have cost $4,000. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. I'll make sure there's links right. in the show notes, of course. So. Thank you very much. I, I'm looking forward to doing Dan Sember with you as well. It's coming. Stay tuned. Okay. I wanted to pop in here because I'm still kind of struggling a little bit with the conversation that Steve and I had regarding the Wolfman. I love the movie. Now, don't get me wrong. I really, really enjoy the film. And I meant it when I said at the top of the episode that the Wolfman is one of the more important, most important films that really turned me into a monster kid and loving this stuff. The Wolfman movies mean so much to me. I love those films. But I still struggle. I mean, as I've gotten older and a little bit more aware and as I've grown, you know, the, the whole thing with Larry spying on Gwen through the telescope and the really pushing for a date, even though she says no, over, I just, you know, it's a mess. I, I don't, I don't know how to address that without coming across like a dude um, <laughs> or, or some guy who thinks he's going to fix every, I, I don't know. So here's what I've done. I discussed it with my wife, Brenda, and I'm thinking she and I are going to sit down to watch The Wolfman together at some point this month, and I'm going to have her come on, and we're going to talk a little bit about her point of view on the film as well. And of course, I'd love to hear your point of view, too. I'll mention the contact information at the end of the show, so stay tuned for that, or just check it out over at monsterkidradio.net, because I'd love to hear your thoughts on The Wolfman as well. So it is what it is. I love The Wolfman, even though it's got that teeny tiny bit of problematic content. I, maybe I'm making it too big of a deal out of it. Anyway, big thanks to Steve for uh, being patient with me as I kind of stumbled through that portion of the conversation and for joining me on the show. When the moon is full, the beast must die. Eight people, each one a suspect. One of you is a werewolf. You, the audience, must track down the werewolf. You must choose between eight suspects. When the film stops, guess which one is the werewolf. Watch for the werewolf break. See it. Solve it. But don't tell. The beast must die. From Cinerama releasing rated PG parental guidance suggested. The beast must die. If you've seen all the other horror films, this is for you. More horror, more screams, and more fright than your wildest nightmares in Frankenstein's bloody terror. An all-new super shocker filmed in Cinerama 70mm and gory color. Now meets the wolf. A slashing, inhuman creature who prowls by night for new victims. 
its terror beyond your most fearsome imagination as vampires using the powers of witchcraft summon the hideous wolf monster. Don't miss Frankenstein's bloody terror. It's a super shock spectacle of hideous horror in Chillerama 70 and gory color. Rated GP. We are near the end of the podcast, so I want to go ahead and make a few announcements. First of all, I've been asking people that if there are any Halloween or monster movie events happening in your neck of the woods, please send me some information about it because I'd love to announce it here on the show and give people in your area a chance to attend, like a screening of the giant Gila monster in Peoria, Illinois on Saturday, October 19th, hosted by friend of the show, Lord Blood Raw. Not only is he going to be hosting that film, he'll also be attending QuadCon earlier that same day. Listener of the show, Jeff B., sent me that email, and there's a chance he's going to get a recording for us, so stay tuned for that. Jeff, have a blast, man. And if anybody's going to be in the area, well, I'd love to hear how it goes. Back here to the Portland, Oregon area, I can tell you that uh, the Hollywood Theater is showing some amazing things this month. The month of Halloween, October, man, so many classic and newer horror films are being shown, like The Uninvited, which I'll be going to next weekend. So while some of you are watching The Giant Gila Monster with Lord Blood Raw, I'll be watching The Uninvited with Dominique Lamsey's and probably Chris McMillan and anybody else in the Portland, Oregon area that wants to join us. And it looks like we're going on October 19th. It's showing at 2 o'clock. Book your tickets now over at hollywoodtheater.org. And theater spelled with an R-E at the end of E-R. Link in the show notes. And the reason I recommend that is because so many of these things are already selling out. So... If you're going to be at the Uninvited, I'd love to meet you again. You know how it works. I'm the big guy who looks like he's having the most fun in the room, and I may even have my recorder with me. We'll see. Later this month on September, on September, man, it really is kind of an off day. I'm still catching up from the Lovecraft Film Festival and the lack of sleep from that. I mean, it's glorious, but it does take its toll. Anyway, later this month, October 26th, the Joy Cinema will be hosting another Scarathon. Five movies all day long. You can buy an all-day pass now for $25 or just buy tickets for each individual film at their regular low prices. Check them out at thejoycinema.com. These are the movies that are going to be playing at the Scarathon. You ready? At 1 p.m., we're going to kick things off with Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. The next movie at 3 o'clock is Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. At 5 o'clock, Brides of Dracula. At 7 o'clock, Plan 9 from Outer Space. And at 9 o'clock, closing out the event with the original Fright Night. I know I'm going to be there for at least the first three films and introducing the movies and maybe doing a little bit more. We'll see. Stay tuned to Monster Kid Radio because I'll announce it here first and then I'll talk about it on Facebook and Twitter if there's going to be anything else going on with Monster Kid Radio at the Scarathon. But it's looking like it's going to be a good time. It's a great way to kind of get ready for Halloween because on Halloween Day, October 31st, we're going to be doing even more movies at the Monster Kid Radio Halloween Monster Movie Marathon Watch Along on Twitch. All day long, I'm going to be streaming classic monster movies. So far, I've got five or six movies lined up. I'm going to be plugging in a few more as we go. Stay tuned to monsterkidradio.net and Facebook and YouTube for further announcements about what you can expect that day. But I can tell you this, you need to set up an account over at Twitch, which is at twitch.tv 
and then look for Monster Kid Radio, all one word, all lowercase, to do the friend request or whatever the heck it is Twitch does. I'm still new to the platform, but I've got to figure it out to where we're going to be showing some awesome films, including House of the Gorgon. Yeah, Josh Kennedy's movie. And Christopher Armium's most recent film, Queen of Snakes. We're going to be throwing those into the mix, and then we've got some other ones lined up. This, oh, man, it's going to be a good time. Probably going to be starting around 9-ish in the morning Pacific time, and then going all bloody day, Halloween day. And yes, I know Halloween is on a Thursday, which is the traditional release date for Monster Kid Radio. So if you can't join us on Twitch, there will be a Monster Kid Radio episode for you to listen to. Do you know what's going to be on that episode? Well, I've already kind of mentioned it at the beginning of the show. But if you check out the Monster Kid Radio on YouTube YouTube channel, you'll see the October 2019 coming soon video, card subject to change. That'll tell you what you can expect the rest of this month on MKR. And you know what? I'm only going to mention this because I think it's probably a good idea for you to buy your tickets now if you're interested. It's not a classic monster movie, but darn, it's a good monster movie anyway. Phantasm 1 and 2, 35mm film at the Hollywood Theater, Saturday, November 2nd, with Don Coscarelli in attendance. I've met the man before. He's amazing. Super cool dude. And these movies, I mean, I know they're not classic horror films, but... They are still pretty special, especially the first one to me. Oh, man, that movie's so good. I'll make sure there's links in the show notes to all of this, of course, over at monsterkidradio.net, along with our contact information. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. You can send me an email or a recording, like a WAV file or an MP3 or even an AIFF or whatever that is. You can send me correspondence that way, or you can just call in and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. And you know what? I'm reading that phone number off the website. I've got it up here on my computer screen in front of me. Yeah, I still don't have it memorized. So I'm looking at the phone number here on the show notes from last week's episode when we had filmmaker Seb Godain on the show to talk about vampire movies from the 70s. And it just reminded me that Seb hit his Kickstarter goal for his upcoming movie, Blood Rites of the Vampire. And I know part of the reason why he did it is because some of you guys and gals kicked in. So thank you. On behalf of Seb, I'm sure I can say thanks, but, you know, just as somebody who really wants to see the movie, thank you. And congratulations to Seb for making that happen. Okay, back on track. MonsterKidRadio.net, that's where everything you need to know about the show is. You can find links to our Facebook page and our Facebook group, our Monster Kid Radio on YouTube YouTube channel, the Twitch channel, Twitter. It's all there. There's even a link or two that'll take you to Amazon to buy some of the things that we've talked about here on the show. And when you buy it that way, you help support the show because we're an Amazon affiliate and every little bit helps, especially as we get into the time of year when all I want to do is go to the movies. So, <laughs> that's, you know, I don't get free tick. And every little bit helps. What's coming up next week on the show? Well, if you've watched the YouTube video, you already know. But I can tell you that we've got an old friend coming back. Time for a checkup. With the doctor. Dr. Gang Green is coming to the show next week. What movie will we talk about? Well, if you've already watched a YouTube video, you know. Otherwise, come back here in seven days to find out. Between now and then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories is copyright Jerry Green, 2019. And the song, Glade Runner Blues, is copyright Black Valley Moon. 
cool surf band based out of Tampa, Florida, that you can find at blackvalleymoon.bandcamp.com. Again, the album is called The Baleful Sounds of Black Valley Moon, Volume 1. Link in the show notes. Check them out. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. <laughs>